0: Chapter Twenty Eight of Tracked by a Tattoo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tracked by a Tattoo by Fergus Hume. Chapter Twenty Eight Sir Lewis Explains. The outcome of Fank's Midnight Meditations was that he resolved to devote himself entirely to following the clue afforded by Mrs. Prism's story of the tattooed cross. The dead father had chosen the symbol of St. Catherine's martyrdom for some unknown purpose. The murdered son had perished while the same emblem was being tattooed on his arm. For some reason he had wished to be marked in such a way, and the murderer had taken advantage of the wish to inoculate the blood of his victim with a deadly poison. If, then, Fanks could learn the significance of the cross, he might be able to fathom the mystery of the death. The question he asked himself was whether he could find out the truth concerning the cross in the study of the late Sir Francis. The warning which the dead man had given to Mrs. Prism seemed strange to the detective. That it was dictated by fear of Madeline Gary he felt sure but as she had passed away, and had forgone her vengeance, it would seem that the warning was useless. Nevertheless, Fanks resolved to see the desk referred to by Mrs. Prism, and to search for the evidence hinted at by Sir Francis. Also, for reasons of his own, which the reader may guess, he wired to Hersham at the Fairview Vicarage, to seek an explanation from his father relative to the cross tattooed on his arm. The tale of the Reverend Hersham might show why the special symbol of Sir Francis was figuring on the skin of a young man who had nothing to do with the Fellingers and their mad freaks. After concluding the first part of his scheme by dispatching this letter, Thanks proceeded to the second, and walked to Mere Hall to see the desk referred to by Mrs. Prism. Garth had refused to accompany the detective to the hall and gave his reason for such refusal. It is no good my going," he said,—'I don't wish to see my cousin. And if, as you think, he knows that I am here, there is no longer any reason why I should stay in Damington. I shall go up to town by the midday train and leave you to find out if he has anything to do with the crime.' "'Well, as I know all you know, and a great deal more besides, I don't think it is necessary for you to stay,' said Faggs dryly. I'll follow up the clue afforded by the malice of Mrs. Jerusalem. Return to town by all means, and if you want anything to do, just join Crate in watching the Red Star Hotel in which Mrs. Boazoff lies ill." This Garth promised readily enough, much to the amusement of Fanks, as the latter was simply throwing him into the Society of Crate in order to afford that person a chance of learning the connection, if any, of Garth with the crime. He was assured in his own mind that Garth was innocent, but he was willing to afford Crate some innocent amusement, by setting him to find the mare's nest of his own imagination. When Garth, therefore, departed, Fank smiled in his own quiet way, and went off to solve the more difficult riddle which awaited him at Mere Hall. When he was nearing the hall, a woman stepped out of a gap in the hedge almost in front of him. She was dressed in a black silk dress, with lavender-colored shawl over her shoulders, and she wore also a bonnet of gray velvet made Quaker fashion, and close-fitting over the ears. But it was not at her dress that Fanks looked. He was staring at the most malignant countenance he ever saw in his life. She was pale and thin-lipped, her hair and eyes and eyebrows were of a light, sandy hue, and she had a stealthy, observant way with her, which made Fanks mistrust her on the instant. Like an apparition, she arose from the ground, and laid one thin hand on his breast to detain him. "'One moment, Mr. Fanks,' she said in a perfectly unemotional voice, "'you must speak to me before you go to Meere Hall.' "'Why must I?' demanded Fanks, with a stare. "'And how is it you know my name?' "'Mr. Garth told me your name and your errand.' Oh cried Fanks, remembering Garth's excuse for retiring to bed on the previous night. "'So, you are Mrs. Jerusalem?' "'That is my name, and I wish to tell you—I wish to hear nothing,' said Fanks roughly. "'Mr. Garth had no business to speak about me.' "'What is there between you and him that he should act in this underhand way without telling me? He said he was going to bed last night. Instead of that, he sneaks out and sees you.' "'There you are wrong,' replied Mrs. Jerusalem, still without a trace of emotion. Mr. Garth did not come to me. On the contrary, it was I who came to him at the inn while you were talking to Mrs. Prism. He came out of his bedroom to see me for a few moments, and then I went away.' "'And why did he not tell me about this meeting?' asked Fanks angrily. "'Because I asked him not to. I wished to take you by surprise.' If you had heard of my midnight visit, you might mistrust me. As it is, as it is, I mistrust you still. Well, Mrs. Jerusalem, we will waive the point. I know you accuse Sir Lewis of this murder. Is it to betray the master whose bread you eat that you have sought this meeting?" "'That is just why I am here,' was the quiet reply. "'I hate my master. Because his father, Michael Fellinger, treated you ill. I know all about that, Mrs. Jerusalem." "'Ah,' said the woman, coldly, "'I see you employ your time with Mrs. Prism to good purpose. Well, you can understand that I hate Sir Lewis and I would gladly see Francis Garth sit in his place.' "'And for this purpose you have concocted a story against Sir Lewis?' "'I have concocted no story. I tell the truth. Sir Lewis and Dr. Binjoy went up to London on the night of the murder although they now pretend that the one was ill and the other attended him. They sent me out of the house on that night. But I suspected, I watched, I discovered. Do you know why the pair went up to London? She continued, grasping Fanks by the arm. To kill Sir Gregory. Do you know why they killed Sir Gregory? To get money for their scientific experiments. Do you know how they killed Sir Gregory? Ask them about the poison needle. Yes they made use of their scientific knowledge to slay the man whose money they wanted. Who put the advertisement in the paper? Ask Mrs. Boazoff, she knows. Does she? said Fanks, disgusted with her malignity. And perhaps you know about the Tattooed Cross? No, I don't know about the Tattooed Cross, said Mrs. Jerusalem, but I dare say Madeline Gary can tell you. Madeline Gary? Do you know her? Is she still alive?" "'I know her. She is still alive. See Sir Lewis, Mr. Fanks,' said the woman, stretching out her lean hand. "'Tear the mask off the lying face of Dr. Benjoy, who loved Madeline Gary, and ask him where she lives. And what evil he has worked with her aid!' Mr. Fanks would have asked but with a sudden movement she eluded his detaining hand, and before he could recover from his astonishment she was far down the road to the village, gliding like an evil shadow into the sunny distance. Fanks thought of following her, but on second thoughts he pursued his journey to the hall. "'Sir Louis and Binjoy first, he muttered. "'Afterwards, Mrs. Jerusalem and Madeline Gary.' despite his belief in the evidence of Mrs. Jerusalem, which was obviously dictated by a malignant spirit, he caught himself wondering if she was really right, and if, after all, Sir Lewis was guilty. But the moment afterwards he rejected this idea, as it was incredible that Sir Lewis would commit a crime and then offer a reward for the detection of the assassin. Still, Fanks admitted to himself that, if Sir Lewis was not frank, he would find it difficult to come to a decision touching his innocence or guilt. On sending in his card at Mere Hall, the detective was admitted into the study of Sir Lewis Fellinger. Here he found not the baronet, but his old acquaintance, Dr. Renshaw, who advanced boldly and introduced himself as Dr. Binjoy. In place of wearing a thick brown beard, he was clean shaven, and his face looked young, fresh colored, and smooth. For the rest, he was as tall and burly as ever, as unctuous in his speech. And to complete the resemblance between himself and the doctor of Tooley's alley, there lurked an unmistakable look of anxiety in his gray eyes. It was impossible to think how he hoped to deceive so clever a man as Fanks by so slight a change in his personal appearance. But he evidently thought Fanks knew nothing of the truth, for he came forward with a bland smile, prepared to carry on the comedy. My dear sir, said Binjoy with magnificent pompousness, your card was brought to Sir Lewis, but he has been busy in his laboratory, and is rather untidy in consequence. He deputed me to receive you. Pray be seated. Thanks smiled slightly and sat down, while Dr. Binjoy, rendered uneasy by the silence, carried on a difficult conversation. I presume, Mr. Thanks, that you have come to report your doings to Sir Lewis touching this unfortunate death of my friend's predecessor in the title. May I ask if you have any clue to the assassin?" "'Oh, yes,' said Fanks quietly. "'You will be pleased to hear, Dr. Binjoy, that I have every hope of arresting the right man.' Binjoy turned gray and looked anything but delighted. Indeed, an unprejudiced observer would have said that he looked thoroughly frightened but he controlled himself so far as to falter out a question as to the name of the guilty man. Fanks mentioned the name of Renshaw, and thereby reduced his listener to a state of abject terror. "'Renshaw is innocent, sir,' said the doctor, tremulously. "'I would he were here to defend himself. But he is in India at present, at Bombay. I received a letter from him dated from Aden.' "'How strange!' said Fanks innocently. Dr. Turner got a letter from him also." Benjoy saw that he had overreached himself and bit his lip. "'We need to discuss Renshaw no longer,' he said coolly. "'Let us talk of other matters till Sir Lewis enters.' "'By all means,' said Fanks. "'Let me ask you, Dr. Benjoy, what you were doing at Dr. Turner's in Great oak Street on the night of the 21st? Binjoy went pale again, and stammered out a denial. "'I was not in town on that night,' he protested. "'I was attending on Sir Lewis, who was ill. I never left the house at Taxton-on-Thames.' "'Oh, yes, you did. You went up with Sir Lewis.' "'Prove it! Prove it!' gasped Binjoy, with white lips. "'I can prove it by the mouth of Mrs. Jerusalem. She saw you leave. She saw Sir Lewis return alone.' a lie, a lie! It is not a lie and you know it. It is time to have done with this farce, Dr. Benjoy. I know who you are. I know all about your impersonation and disguise. I know why you called yourself Renshaw. I traced you to Plymouth and saw you disembark. I followed you to this place and now I have you." Binjoy stared wildly for a moment at seeing his mask of lies fall away from him, and then sank back in his chair with a shiver, moaning and crying. "'It is a lie, a lie!' was all he could gasp. "'It is not a lie,' said a voice at the door, and Fanks turned to see Sir Lewis. "'It is not a lie,' repeated the baronet. "'Binjoy is Renshaw.' He went up with me to town on the night of the twenty-first. If you want to know who killed my cousin, Mr. Fanks, there is the assassin." End of chapter twenty-eight